Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome to another episode of Provocative Inquiry, designed to inform and enlighten. This is two hours for the open-minded, interested in exploring the nature of our universe, our consciousness, the power of our thoughts and intentions, how and why they interact, if they do, all in our attempt to understand what it means to be human. What forces act upon us and why? What we can expect of ourselves and others? What is meant by free will or the limitation thereof? And why any and all of this matters? In our effort to grasp exactly what enlightenment means and what it is to be enlightened, we make it a point to admit in the beginning that there are many human limitations, some we know and some we might not be aware of. And therefore we acknowledge that everything we thought we knew just might be wrong. In this way, each week we undertake anew our search and discovery of the human potential in hopes that we may truly expand our awareness. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room with some very special folks that join us every week, so don't miss out. Join the chat room today. Okay, Rav, it's time for you to tell us all about your chat room and provide one of those special invitations. Well, hello, everyone. Of course, I would love to extend a warm invitation to all of you to come join us in the chat room where the conversation is very lively, very insightful, and very inspiring. So do come on in, say hello. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. Our chat (laughs) in our Spotlight of the Week segment. This week, we turn our attention to the notion of oneness but in a very narrow and yet special sense. Last week, our show hosted Andrea Matthews, and she shared her idea of oneness, one that I characterized during the interview as a picture of self-responsibility. Andrea, however, suggested that oneness included all, and therefore we think of perpetrators of evil and their victims, such as the family in Pakistan who brutally stoned their pregnant daughter to death on her wedding day. We think of it as it's appropriate to recognize that they are a part of who we are and as such find ways to integrate all of this within ourselves in order to know heaven right now. The heaven spoken about in the Bible is the kingdom within. And this was Andrea's position. Now, to the extent that this can be interpreted to suggest that each of us should be willing to take responsibility for doing all that is within our power to improve the world, I totally agree. So in the instance of the pregnant bride, whose skull was actually crushed by her brother with a brick, integration for me means doing all that I peacefully can do to see that tragedies of this sort come to an end. Perhaps that's education, and more education, conversations, and still more education, all in an attempt to raise the standard when it comes to honoring freedom and life itself. Speak up when you see something wrong and live the example you wish to see. That's our role in oneness, at least as far as I'm concerned. Life is a miracle. Living is an adventure and it's full of opportunities to refine our own sense of the metaphysical, as well as the more mundane, everyday world so many take for granted. All life is sacred. There are many arguments about what constitutes life these days and who has charge of ending it. 
of significant importance in all of these debates is the idea of consciousness. For most of the world, a conscious being, one who is fully aware of themselves, conscious, is generally considered to have control, therefore, over their own destiny. That is, they have a right to live. Okay, now to my point. Lately, I have been especially troubled by how so many of our conscious friends are treated in ill-dignified ways. It hurts me, and I mean literally, for I feel it, when I read of a tragedy such as with this young pregnant bride in Pakistan. The sick feeling that hits me is not noticeably different from the discomfort that I feel when I see an animal seriously mistreated. Indeed, the heartache and distress is just as intense when some fool clubs a puppy to death. Everyone I have ever spoken with, all of my training and years of experience, as well as my intuition, dictate that I listen to my feelings. So I ask myself, what is it that I am feeling and why? The intuitive answer suggests that I attribute consciousness to the animal world, just as I do to good old homo sapiens. All right, is that fair? I have had the good fortune to work closely with many animals in my life, from my childhood friend, my very first puppy, to the days when I owned a racing stable and all-breed stallion station, to the youth of my children when we introduced and raised them with chickens and goats and sheep, pigs, ponies, llamas, dogs, cats, exotic birds, you name it. Animals have always displayed their own special consciousness and personalities as well. How and why is it then that it is so easy for so many to discount them as non-feeling, non-conscious entities to be used in any way one sees fit? I tend to be rather left-brain, if you will, and I definitely lean toward logic, reason, and the scientific method. That said, I have been blessed with more than enough life experiences to know that there is a greater reality than just the stuff of shoes and ships and sealing wax. I believe there is an afterlife, and I think the evidence supports that, at least from the criteria we would use in a court of law. Still, I'm not naive. I know it's not a proven scientific fact. Nonetheless, I believe there is life after death, and with the same certainty that I acknowledge you and your eternal nature, I recognize the eternal nature of our animal friends as well. Maybe I just want to believe that my special friends, my dogs and horses and so forth, all live on in an afterlife as well. I don't know what you think, but there are many interesting facts about non-human forms of consciousness that most are simply oblivious of. For example, did you know that ants bury their dead in designated graveyards and pray? Did you know that in September of 2012, an international group of scientists signed the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness, proclaiming their belief, based on decades of research, that animals are indeed conscious and capable of experiencing human emotions. The Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness basically declares that this prominent international group of scientists agree, quote, convergent evidence indicates that non-human animals have the neuroanatomical, neurochemical, and neurophysiological substrates of conscious states 
along with the capacity to exhibit intentional behaviors. Close quote. All right, get that. Animals not only exhibit intentional behavior, but experience human emotions and other cognitive processes. Animals are known to have remarkable memories, to know when their owners are coming home, to risk their lives to save another animal, including the two-legged version known as humans. They are known to befriend and protect each other and to behave similarly across species. So it's not uncommon for a goat to nurse an orphan foal or a dog to defend a cat and so forth. Given all of this, why do you think our society continues by and large to mistreat animals? And it's not just our pets. It can be the farming methods some employ. And for that matter, it can be an unthinking consumer who may defend animal rights and then orders meat from a fast food counter without a thought to how the animal they are about to eat was managed in life. It's not an easy thing to live awake and act conscious in our world today, but it is of my opinion that if you're not aware of how your life interacts with animals, you're still asleep. That said, the noesis of this fact is in itself also insufficient. For if we are to incorporate or do something proactive about those issues in life that matter, such as the young bride in Pakistan, then we must also take responsibility for the plight of our animal kingdom. Speak out and act. All right, that's my opinion. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? My thoughts, I could go on for a long, long time about this one. I'll try to keep it brief. You know, the fact is, uh, you could, I don't know why people want to separate animals from humans. To me, they're all along a spectrum. You know, there are, there's a spectrum of intelligence, and there are some humans that are not as intelligent as some animals, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about seriously, you know, they can be mentally disabled or some other variation and they're not capable of taking care of themselves. But there is just a spectrum of it all and we wouldn't treat a disabled person that badly. So why would we treat an animal just because they don't speak a language that, you know, we can use easily? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. We see animals caring for their young, doing brave acts, being sad when their owners are away, you know, being depressed, being brave when they're in pain. You know, we have seen all of that stuff. It's not difficult. It's not like you have to be in a lab examining and looking under a microscope, you know. These emotions are obvious. I see that every time I see Jesse, our dog, my dog. Yeah, your dog. Well, I, 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 I object a little bit to the comparison to... Uh, um, human beings in the sense that you made it, but I, I share totally your your passion about uh, I don't understand how people can treat animals as though they are of nescient merit, period. See, I, I have no clue. I don't see a difference between an animal and a human. And I've raised the cattle, as you know, and the horses. I, I, you name the animal. Uh, well, I haven't raised any bison, I guess, and that's kind of indigenous to this area, but generally... Uh, they all exhibit personalities, and they all exhibit intelligence. And that's right down what our show is about today. So, But let's get on. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. 
Last week, our show featured Andrea Matthew, and we spoke about her book, Inhabiting Heaven Now. Mark wrote, I found Andrea Matthew's view of morality both refreshing and puzzling at the same time. On the one hand, she takes a fresh approach to morality instead of following the conventional moral dualistic worldview, which says that we must obey the rules of what is right, resisting what is wrong. Andrea says we need to take a more non-judgmental view and view our experiences within and in the world as messages which the authentic self is attempting to convey in order to bring us closer to realizing our full authentic potential. On the other hand, much of this moral guidance offered by the authentic self, of which Andrea speaks, focuses primarily on the transformation of the self. It does not seem to offer much guidance as far as how we ought to act in the world, whether it be how to respond towards such atrocities as the stoning of the girl in Pakistan or practical living of one's life in the world. Based on her responses to Eldon's question, Andrea seems to downplay the significance of our need for such moral guidance. For me, I think more robust moral code is in order. Well, Mark, I totally agree. Brian wrote, at risk of opening up a giant can of worms, I think the practical application of any moral code for people to follow is a very tough proposition. Who will be the diviner of the code? How does the message get out? If people disagree with the moral code and choose not to abide by it, what do you do with them? I am pretty sure that since humans roamed around this planet in small tribes, somebody has tried to make sure everyone has played nice with each other with the good of the group being in mind. Somehow there just seems to be those folks who think they are a bit better than the group and deserve more. Perhaps the fact that you and I can communicate about this electronically after listening to a radio internet broadcast is just another step in the evolution of our species, hopefully towards the good. Elias wrote, I don't get people who think morality is relative and yet condemn the actions of people like the family that killed that girl in Pakistan. Well, you know, Elias, I again, I totally agree. Ravinder, you and I have discussed the importance of discovering some universal value that some or that should apply to all everywhere in the world. And even our obligation, perhaps as part of our spiritual quest to identify what this principle is. And I think as close as we have come is to declare the importance of life and freedom. And they must somehow fit this criteria. Would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I would. You know, I think one of the the problems with the whole issue right now is to do with political correctness. Everyone wants to be open to everyone, you know, all the other groups. So it's not just the American culture that is correct. All cultures are perfectly valid as well. Um, and when it comes to smaller things like do you cover your head in church or do you uncover your head in church, well, that's perfectly fine. You know, everyone should decide for themselves. But there are certain things that I think transcend all those boundaries. And if you're in a culture that says it's okay to m- mistreat a woman, then I think we have to speak out. That I mean, they are definitely wrong. So searching for, you know... Taking the political correctness out of it, there is definitely a place for moral judgments. I totally concur. Moving on, John wrote, I love your show and the music thing with your guests is a fresh idea that adds a nice touch to your interviews. Well, thanks, John. Annette wrote, your Intertalk CDs are lifesavers. Thank you. Michael wrote, I have heard Eldon Taylor on Coast to Coast IM several times. 
He has an immense cache of knowledge in the fields of self-hypnosis and subliminal technology. His book, Self-Hypnosis and Subliminal Technology, quickly and methodically lays out the basics of these two fields and tells you how to make your own self-hypnosis and subliminal tapes specifically tailored to you. It's a five-star read. Well, thanks, Michael. Just as an F-U-R, yeah, yeah, just as an F-Y-I, there we go, (laughs) I'll get my tongue around this in a minute, Uh, the book is on sale at Barnes & Noble and Amazon right now for under $20, and it comes with a CD and has online earls for additional training. You will experience and learn to practice self-hypnosis if you get it. If you've ever wanted to learn hypnosis or meditation, you'll want this book, and at the unbelievable price of under $20, you absolutely cannot go wrong. You attended a course that I taught in... Uh, the United Kingdom is when we first met. Uh-huh. You know this course very well, both what you attended and paid lots of money for, what we courses we have both attended paid lots of money for. For under $20, is there anything you're going to miss in this that you didn't get in these $500 and $1,000 courses? No, but the advantage is doing it in the comfort of your home. Some of those chairs can get uncomfortable after a while. <laughs> so it's a plus, a plus added. Okay, Robert wrote, I read your book, Mind Programming. I am 28 years old, and I realized that many of my younger years were influenced by thought and thinking patterns that were not of my own inception. At that point, I became frustrated because your mind is your most valuable asset in this realm. I am now forever aware, and I cannot appreciate your work enough. I find the information you deliver to be essential to life, especially life that is controlled by an ever-growing technical and electronic age. We are influenced out of our own minds at such an alarming rate, and people of all walks should take heed of this information. It is truly a curriculum pathway to mental health. Well, thank you, Robert, and for the record, I couldn't agree more. Sometimes the information we need to have is not what we want to hear. Indeed, I recently bought back, and by that I mean I literally sent Hay House a check for thousands of dollars to get back my newest book because I refused to bastardize it, reducing 120,000 factual words to some 50,000 nice-sounding bits with hopeful blessings. The new one, by the way, is titled We the Sheeple, Servants of the Elite. It's with my agent now, and I'll let you know when it is released. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, The Animal Afterlife, with a favorite of mine, Kim Sheridan. Kim Sheridan is an award-winning author, filmmaker, lecturer, and workshop leader. She is a popular guest on radio and television, and her expertise includes animals' health and the environment. She is a highly respected and sought-after expert on life after death for humans and animals alike, and her time is devoted not only to animals, but to those who are left behind when loved ones pass. She is the author of the award-winning Animals in the Afterlife, and it is a great, great book, and co-author of Raw Foods Classics. Uncooking with Jameth and Kim. Kim is the founder of Enlightened House Entertainment, Compassion Circle, Healthy Chick, Healthy Hunk, and Go Green Already. I'm going to have to ask her about Healthy Chick and Healthy Hunk, huh? <laughs> All of which hold true to Kim's values to raise awareness, teach compassion, and respect the earth and all living things. She has been listed in Who's Who in Executives and Professionals, 2,000 Notable American Women, 
and great minds of the 21st century. She lives in Southern California with her husband and their beloved animal family. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Kim Sheridan. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be back. Well, it's indeed a pleasure to have you. I've been very much looking forward to this. Uh, you know, you and you and I haven't spoken in a while, so and I know you've been very busy. What have you been up to of late? Well, it, I've had I've been through kind of an interesting the past year or two. I would say I've kind of been to hell and back. It's it's been a period of my life that I always call when I'm going through it fodder. It's fodder for future works, future books, future films. So I've been gathering a lot of personal experience that will be future projects that my hope is will help others because that's of course what I look for in everything I go through. Right. Uh, now, I don't suppose a, you'd like to elaborate on the fodder, would you? <laughs> it's been everything from just tremendous loss, which, you know, is an ongoing part of my life in which what, what I feel makes my work so authentic is I'm right there in the trenches going through the loss of animals and the, and, and all of the pain that, that, that entails. I've also gone through uh, a family member with cancer and going through that whole process and uh, just a lot of things hitting me, uh, multiple moves. You know that list of the top stressors in life? I think yeah. I've been through a lot of them in this past couple of years. So, you know, as, as painful as it's been, I'm grateful to have gotten through it and for the lessons I've learned along the way, as always. Well, I'll tell you, I'm grateful for the contribution you make to uh, the world of understanding animals and the hope that many of us have that they do indeed share an afterlife. I'm sorry to hear about, you know, the stuff that is your fodder, but I love your attitude about it, too. You heard the setup oh, piece, you. Kim. Do you think hypocrisy, the kind that I mentioned, uh, you know, uh, the way people treat animals in the world, you know, do you find that to be real and common out there? It is, and I, I think there are a couple of reasons for it, and none the least of which is just this idea of of conforming and following what is right. I find that so many times the leaders in our world, those who take charge, tend to not be like you and me, tend to not be empaths, not to be empathic whatsoever, actually. Uh, quite a few sociopaths tend to be in positions of power in our world. And so what happens is the general feeling is we need to follow what our culture dictates, even, you know, not realizing. And many people don't realize that a lot of those dictates are created by those who don't think like the majority of us, those who don't have a conscience. And so, so many times you see a vast majority of people following something that if they themselves had been the ones to initiate the original uh, dictate would have gone completely differently. Um, I see that so often with people, you know, they look around, is it okay? Well, it's not considered okay. It's considered lesser. If you're grieving over an animal, it's considered lesser than grieving over a human. And no one wants to be the one to be politically incorrect and say, hey, wait a minute, you know what? The truth of the matter is I'm grieving far more over the loss of my dog than I did over my mother, for example or whatever the case may be. But, you know, right. it, privately in hushed tones in my work, people often share that with me, almost with an air of guilt, like it's not okay. But the truth is, uh, from, from my perspective, from looking at this for so many years, and, and the fact that we're all souls, and really getting that we're souls, if, you know, inhabiting for a, for a short time a physical body for whatever experience our soul needs, um, suddenly the body becomes irrelevant. So whether that body had four paws and fur or fins 
or, or feathers or flesh is really irrelevant. It's about that relationship and that love shared between two souls. And that's, that's kind of the point of my whole, of my whole premise. Yeah, and, and, I, and I couldn't agree with you more. And I, you know, I will speak out. I have, I have lost human friends, and I have lost animal friends, and and the grieving process, it, it knows no difference. It, 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 in fact, it it may be worse with the animal because you don't have the opportunity to speak to them. They they can't convey to you how they're feeling, especially those last days. If you end up you know, having to make that tough decision to euthanize him. Uh, we'll pick this all up when we come back. We're speaking with Kim Sheridan about her life and her inspiring book, Animals in the Afterlife. You can learn more about Kim by visiting her website at animalsintheafterlife.com. That's animalsintheafterlife.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. The praise for Elton Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say. Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're visiting with Kim Sheridan about her life and book, Animals and the Afterlife. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives. They're life songs, if you will. This often provides some added and interesting insight into our guest. Now, we just played the lovely music, Angel, by Sarah McLaughlin. Why is this song important to you, Kim, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, the first time I believe I ever heard this song was years ago. It was it was used in the film The Witness by Tribe of Heart, an intense documentary with an animal theme, very much like what we're talking about. And it was just so moving for me that I, I, I actually often played this song at my booths in the early days when I was first uh, promoting my work and before the book was even completely written, when I was still out in the world compiling stories about animals and the afterlife. And it, it touches me in so many ways. For one, it's just such a beautiful song. And the words I relate to on a lot of levels, the not feeling good enough and the, the feelings so many of us have, especially those of us who are very sensitive and empathic, you know, at the end of the day, we feel like we haven't done enough. And, and so many times I've been through these feelings in, in my own life when it comes to animals. Because as you started to talk to earlier, talk about earlier, uh, it's almost like we, we as the humans in the relationship have to play God, especially toward the end of an animal's life when we're making those, those big decisions, the euthanasia question, the did I do enough, was this my fault? And, you know, I can tell you just like anyone, with with any loss, I could go over in my head for a week all the ways I killed that animal, all the things I did wrong, all the things, all the decisions I should have made differently. And that's as difficult and painful as it is. That's a normal part of of being a caring, a caring being who cares for another and wants to do the right thing. And, and in a way, the more we care, the less confidence we have that we made the right decisions. And again, that's just a sign that the, that the caring is there, the compassion is there, and that the love is there. And this song kind of just, for me, it validates that. It validates that as a real and almost a necessary process to go through, as painful and agonizing as it is. And also, in the same token, a reminder that both you and, of course, the, the being who has made the transition is in the arms of an angel, and that there is that that you know, otherworldly presence there. And I often, when I'm in those final moments, call for help from the beyond to help me in, in the transition and kind of take it over from from where I leave off in my limited human capacity. And, you know, songs like that, I think, just help to, to find meaning and comfort in times like these. You know, I, I want to get into how you counsel people and the time that you spend as their pets are passing and, and some of your personal stories. But I think you, you hit the nail on the head uh, when it comes to euthanizing an animal. Um, you know, you are playing God and uh, and you really do rethink that. Should I wait it longer? I mean, how much pain were they in? How much life did I take away from them? You know, it, 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 that that. I, I, I'll just speak for myself. That haunts you, and it haunts you forever. It doesn't go away. Whenever I turn and I think of my friends that I've had to euthanize, it's there. 
and and you know it'll pull tears out of me it's just it doesn't go away you don't have that issue i guess when it comes to the passing of human beings you know listen kim we like to get three things from our guests who they are what is the message and how do we use it so you know tell us a little bit about yourself to begin this to set this up what was your childhood like were you popular in school what were your passions then? Did you believe in an afterlife? Were you raised religious, you know? Okay, sure. I was a very kind of sensitive child. I guess I was what you would call a stereotypical Gemini in that I kind of had two sides. I had this really shy, reserved, um, bookish side. And then I had this other side that only came out when I felt real safe that was more like the entertainer putting on puppet shows with the animals and, you know, kind of coming at life trying to educate and inform through entertainment. Um, and then the more quiet side of me was always doing the research and finding all of this data that I then wanted to share. And that involved things such as ghosts and, and otherworldly events. And I think that was, for me, spurred by some personal experiences of my own. Uh, for example, often dreaming things that happened either the next day or shortly thereafter, and knowing that there's there's something more than what we're taught because to this, I'm like you. I'm very much in my logical mind a lot of the time and really analyzing things. And so then when I have these other completely opposite of the spectrum experiences, I analyze them. And, and it, sometimes it, it, you feel like it can drive you crazy because my logical mind's thinking, well, tomorrow hasn't happened yet. So how could I be seeing tomorrow before it has happened? And then the other mind's like, nevertheless, I saw it. You know, there's something, there's something bigger than what we're taught. So that was something I grappled with from a very early age. Um, that combined with a, a real strong love of animals, and along with that, of course, comes loss. Some of the animals that I've had from an early age on are, are kind of unusual in my life, including rats, pet rats, who have a very short lifespan relative to a lot of other animals. So for me, that was an experience of loss pretty regularly from an early from the age of five on, um, and really searching for that meaning the whole time, kind of wrapped back around as an adult kind of picking up where I left off and taking it to a whole new level. Uh, as a child, I, you know, I, I in, in some ways I was more comfortable with who I was, and as an adult it became less okay because, you know, as you become educated, certain things you're told there aren't okay. I was mm-hmm. raised Christian, you know, went to church, and it was interesting because when I would have these experiences, everything from seeing auras, you know, before getting on an airplane and saying, if I don't see auras, I'm not getting on. It's crazy things. I don't know where I got from, so to speak. Okay. Um, and my parents, though really respecting, because seeing so many times what I predicted came true, uh, many times it was actually the de- one time it was the death of the next-door neighbor, um, things that you can't deny. Um, and my mom, I remember one time calling the pastor's wife, and saying, you know, Kim has all of these experiences, and she often has these dreams about, you know, people exactly what's going to happen the next day, and the ambulance showing up, and what the verdict will be, and how they're going to die, and why is this happening? And the, the nice thing is, instead of shunning it, saying it was the work of the devil, or what, what one might expect, um, the pastor's wife was just very, very interested in saying, well, you know, if these things are happening, it must be a gift from God, so it must be okay. And um, cool. so that was nice. That was nice to have that validation, even from, you know, the, the religious side of my upbringing. Um, I, I was always more of a deep thinker than, than taught in church. 
for example, I remember asking even my grandmother, who was a devout Baptist, I would say that she would say, you know, you have to have certain beliefs or you're going to go to hell. And I would say, but grandmother, what about um, if someone's raised on the other side of the world and they're raised of a different religion and no one told them, you know, is that is it fair for them to be condemned to hell for something they, that no one ever even told them? Right. And her answer at the time, which surprised me because I love my grandmother, I still do, um, <clears throat> but she said, ignorance is no excuse. And I remember thinking, that just doesn't sit right with me. I, I refuse to believe that I'm more compassionate than God. And I've had moments where I've thought, well, maybe I am. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's just interesting. So I think a lot of those life experiences really just culminated in, in my work with animals and the afterlife. And ultimately, my whole goal in, in doing this work is to provide comfort for people like myself out there. It, it started just as a journey of my own that I never thought was going to become anything more than that. But the, the deeper I went into it, the more I saw that, you know, all of the help that I really needed that at first didn't seem to be there and that I had to slowly uncover um, should be available to anyone else going through these same feelings and these same experiences. You know, it, it's said that we teach what we most need to learn and I think there's some truth in that, not always. I think we, there's many reasons we teach. Sometimes we teach because we already have learned or we have knowledge and we want to share it. But in my case, I believe there is a little bit of that teach what we most need to learn thing because I, I have myself have gone through so much of that beating myself up to the point of just absolute self-torture. And back to the song that you just played, my, when I did a little research on the meaning behind that song originally as it was written, it was about a musician who overdosed on heroin. And the idea that so many of the really sensitive, deep people who life just gets to them and they turn to, to drugs or to alcohol or whatever as an escape. And me being someone who's very walking the clean path, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, you know, needing to find an outlet. Well, what's the alternative? How else do you deal with this? And sometimes it's absolutely overwhelming. How do you deal with this? And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you don't really ever get over a loss. I think you get through it. I think it's just a, a way of changing the perspective. And so for me, again, it was uncovering evidence of an afterlife was what brought me so much comfort. The idea that, yes, the soul was in this body for this short time and although I felt that I was playing God and I felt that my decisions are the, are the reason this beautiful being passed the truth of the matter is I don't have that much power you know this was an equally powerful and important soul having their own life experience and this was their time and I was a part of their journey but I was neither the creator of their journey nor the cause of their demise it was just a process that they were going through and I was one of the players. And really wrapping around that perspective is so comforting. And part of being able to wrap around that perspective is really getting the idea that these are souls and that, you know, death isn't the end. And, and knowing that, looking at the evidence, as I've done for so many years now, it's just it's so overwhelming. There's really no denying it. You know, everything from you know, near-death experiences to uh, after-death contacts, to messages and dreams beyond any chance of them just being a mere dream, but having real, you know, in-depth information. Uh, you, to you, you know, I want to get ahead. into that specificity, Kim, but um, 
you and I both have a bias. I can hear your bias coming out. I admitted my bias early. You know, we want to believe these things. And, yeah. and as a child at five, losing, you know, your rights. I, I think, you know, I remember my son losing his hamster. And we buried the hamster with all the honors of a burial and and assured him that the hamster continued on. I think that's, you know, that's something that, it, that as children, we just have to believe. It's just, you know, it, it, it's critically important. We can't, can't imagine that it's just over. That's it. Done, you know, from dust to dust. Uh, so I think a fair question might travel along with the theme Freud once used regarding religious beliefs. And I just sort of think of his argument as being the, doesn't it feel good justification? In other words, for anyone who has ever lost a dear animal friend, the thought that there is no afterlife is devastating. On the other hand, believing that there is an animal life, a real rainbow bridge, if you will, is so comforting that we, you know, we just need to believe it. Do you really think the evidence you have obtained in the many interviews and experiences you have personally witnessed is sufficiently strong to justify our hopes for an animal afterlife with reason? Or do you think that reason even really matters? I think that's a very, very valid question. You know, it's something I've grappled with, and I'll be really honest, Along somewhere along this journey, there was a point when I was so lost in the depths of grief that I was going to burn my own book. I'm like, you know what? Burn the damn thing. <laughs> There's no, there is no comfort. There is no way to get. Okay, this is the one I'm not going to get over. This is the one I can't justify. This is the one I can't get through or get past. Um, so I know what you're saying, and 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 yes, I do believe we want to believe and we want to find that comfort. And even like the line in the song, it's easier to believe. I think that 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 need to believe, but also the, the part of me that is so skeptical and so um i've never been a follower type personality i've always been more of a leader more of a rebel type personality and so it's never been enough for me just to believe because it's easier or more comfortable or because someone told me so and i think that's why i've you know researched the subject to the nth degree and and tried to leave no stone unturned and tried and to look for those gems that are beyond just wanting to believe. For example, if someone has an after-death contact, whether they hear the bark or, or feel the animal jump on the bed in the night or feel the fur brush against the skin or whatever contact they have with a departed animal, I want to look for more than that because, of course, skeptics, and part of me is one of those skeptics, will say, well, that's just a grieving mind wanting to believe, so creating this experience to make them feel better. So that's when I went beyond to the experiences where third-party witnesses have had these encounters, have seen the departed animal without knowing the animal past, and asked about, oh, well, you know, for example, who's the beautiful collie that just walked through the living room? Wow. And then the person saying, what beautiful collie that just walked through the living room? And then, the, you know, the outsider, the innocent bystander, so to speak, saying, well, you know, describing the animal in detail, and then only to find that this collie died a week or two ago. You know, how, how do you... These are the kind of stories that I've really held on to that anchor in all of the rest and that you make it okay because it, it's harder to justify it. It's harder to explain those away if you know what I'm saying. 
I do. I do. You tell a lot of them in your book. And, you know, and I have the last animal I had to put down, and I've, I've not been able to replace him, was a German shepherd that uh, died to cancer at just five years of age. It was just, you know, unheard of that the animal would would have um, lymphoma at that early age. And we did everything. Um, we did chemo for a bit and and then saw that that wasn't really working and we got an alternative uh, vet involved and he was terrific and and we used you know you name it uh, uh on and we thought he was recovering and then all of a sudden bang he was gone and i mean did so much pain that i i had to use him and and you know right after he passed him i did feel him i w- i felt him he would always lay at my feet. I felt his head go down on my foot. I felt him brush against me. I would see him when I came into my office. Uh, but I'm also, you know, I'm so aware that we we are capable of manufacturing those things. I think one of the beauties about your work is that you go beyond just that. You really do. But I have to ask you this. If animals enjoy our afterlife, then they have souls. Now, many systems, you know, they believe in transmigration of animals, reincarnation. And maybe from a selfish standpoint, I'm going to continue this, but for some, this can mean an animal may move on to a higher form, or the animal may, you know, a person that has been dear to you, a dear friend, may come back as an animal to be kind of a guide. I mean, for example, in Sikhism, they believe that there are 8,400,000 forms of life and that many souls have to travel through a number of them in order to reach the divine. So I guess my question is this. Based on your research, is transmigration real? Is it possible for a human to come back as an animal to be your guide? Or have we come through lower animal states to become human? Um, you know, give give me your input on all this, please. Sure, sure. And again, my input is so much based on the evidence I uncover and the stories I gather. And there have been tremendous, extremely compelling stories of transmigration of the soul in both directions. And interestingly, any time my work has been criticized, it's been one I've dappled and in, delved into these realms because it makes people uncomfortable if their the belief system that they've chosen to adhere to doesn't accept that. But when you look beyond that and just look at the actual experiences, there are tremendous stories to back this up, whether it be someone's departed dog passing and coming back as another dog, or their cat passing and coming back as a dog, or their dog passing and coming back as a cat, or one story of a monk passing and coming back as a cat. Can you share a couple of those stories with us, Kim? Sure, I guess I will tell the monk story, and that's actually a story not in my current book, but in book two, which has been on hold for quite a number of years, but will eventually see the light of day. <laughs> I hope I'll get to see a copy as soon as it's ready. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And So share that story case. with us, please. Sure, sure. And it's been a while since I did the interview on based on this story, so forgive me if all the facts aren't correct, but I'll give you the overall uh, okay. feel for it, and then the, the formal version will eventually see the light of day in, in print. And that is that there was a monk who had two different colored eyes. I believe one was blue and one was green, but don't quote me on that. Okay. 
And he every day at a certain time, when the bells chimed, they would go to the uh, chapel or temple or whatever you want to call it to meditate. And this monk was troubled and eventually took his own life, I believe, in this case. And um, shortly thereafter, a cat appeared who had two different color eyes, just the same as, as the young man had. And um, every day when the bell when the bells chimed, the cat would go sit where the monk used to sit and meditate. And many felt that he had returned as a cat. Now, did he return as a cat? Was it a big coincidence? I don't know. You know, I wasn't there. But that was the first story I heard that got me thinking along these lines. And then I, as a result, I just opened up to it and wanted to hear what people had shared about that. And there have been a number of cases where people have lost a, a departed relative. And then sometime thereafter, a mysterious animal appears in their life with a lot of the mannerisms and behaviors of that person and just brings so much comfort to them in a time when they really need it. It's interestingly, a lot of these cases I found it was an older person who passed um, who was basically at the end of their lifespan and, and left behind people who were, you know, well along in life as well. And it was almost like a completion piece coming back as that animal who has a much shorter lifespan to be together again in a different form. Uh, you know, whether or not that's what's going on again, I can't say. And I know that there are a number of ways this has happened. There's something, I'm not sure uh, if your listeners are aware of it, but it's a term called a walk-in. And that's where someone doesn't basically reincarnate from birth on, but makes an agreement with a soul in a body to basically swap in, so to speak. The soul's kind of done having that experience. So they walk out, and another soul walks into an existing body. And interestingly, one of the most compelling cases of a walk-in I received was from a young devout Christian woman whose, you know, belief system was firmly against the idea of reincarnation. Right. And um, and I won't go into it f- for the purposes here, but, you know, the, the fact that the, even her religion originally did include reincarnation uh, before, you know, before it was basically written out and restructured course, sure. and so forth. Absolutely. Right. So, but this was not part of her belief system at all and it was basically sacrilege to even go there and she was it was this was one of those losses for her that was it was a horse in this case and she was just absolutely absolutely devastated like her life couldn't go on to the point of suicidal because she and this horse were so close i'm gonna have to ask you to hold it on that because i don't want the computer to kick us out and i want to hear this story we're about to go to break so when we come back you tell us about the horse all right that's where we'll pick it up absolutely Again, if you would like to know more about today's cast, Kim Sheridan and her work, visit her site or check out the links on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. I can tell you, if you have an animal and you've not read Animals in the Afterlife, uh, you've done yourself a disservice. This is a great book, and I mean truly a great book. It gives you a great deal of comfort and inspiration. All right, we have a film featuring our guests during the break. You can watch it in our chat room, so if you're not already there, now's a great time to get on over. We'll be right back after a few brief words from our station. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Santa Cecilia, Santa Capilia, Santa Domenica, 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Kim Sheridan about her comforting book, Animals in the Afterlife. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me tomorrow for the online event of the year, the Hay House World Summit. I will be discussing free will at 9 a.m. Do we have it or is it an illusion? The fact is, the answer is a certain maybe. You want to understand why? We'll be sure to tune in tomorrow. It's free. Check out the details and register at eldentaylor.com. All right. Now, we just played another of your musical choices, Kim, Calling All Angels by Jane Seabury and Katie Lang. What's the story on this one other than it's absolutely beautiful? Well, yes. Again, this touches a part of me and a part of so much of my life with this dealing with the afterlife and grappling with the pain of even just existing on this earth sometimes as a sensitive, compassionate being. And I love that Katie Lang herself is a very strong animal advocate. And uh, this song, you know, I've heard a number of theories on what the song is about, but one of them is just about the idea of the soul and choosing to incarnate into a body on this earth and how heavy it is and, and all of the pain and the suffering that we go through. But that ultimately it's worth it for the beauty that we experience while we're here and and to me a big part of that beauty is love 
And again, that, that pain is carried through when we are losing a loved one, and many times it's an animal simply because their lifespans do tend to be shorter than our own. And for me, the comfort in calling all angels, calling for that otherworldly support, and I've had times in my life where I've been just at the, at the, in the depths of despair, and I've just called out, help, you know, if there's anyone out there, you know, I don't see you, you know, how do I know you're there? Help. And I, I remember one time I had just a profound encounter. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I was just too stressed out. It was, you know, in the middle of the night, and I would just, the anxiety was just too much. And I just screamed out, help, help. And suddenly I just felt this presence to the right of me, and I smelled this beautiful, like, almost floral aroma. And I knew someone was there, and I didn't see them. I smelled them, and I felt them. And this sense of absolute peace just washed over me. It just, it just washed away all of the anxiety and the pain. And I was suddenly at peace. And I just felt that, you know, I hadn't done that. That wasn't me. There was someone outside of me coming in to help. And that was, to me, my, my real solid experience of calling all angels and feeling I got an answer. And I think that, you know, it's not always that dramatic. It's usually subtle. But I do believe there is otherworldly help out there for us. And at no time is it more apparent than during the transition of a loved one when they're passing and we're calling for help. There have been so many experiences with both the passing of humans and animals right. where the loved ones at the bedside have, have suddenly seen this, you know, different people describe it as a mist or a fog or just something. This, they see this something coming to usher the soul out of the body and onto the next, you know, experience. And it's always transformative and beautiful and, and unexpected. It's not like they believed in it, and therefore they saw it. It's, it's, these are cases where they didn't think any such thing was even possible, and it just took them by complete surprise. Right. We, we've interviewed physicians, uh, a hospice uh, personnel that have all told that same story. Uh, and some of them were very skeptical, very, you know, linear until, you know, the experience itself. Yeah. An incredible piece of music. I, I um, was not familiar with it, and I truly enjoy uh, learning about, you know, music from people, our guests as they come on, but rarely do I find one that is as pretty as that that I'm not, not aware of. We, uh, we went to break, and you were in the middle of a horse story. Tell us that. Absolutely, and this is along those same lines of completely not believing in or expecting something. And this young devout Christian woman who just lost her, her best friend in the whole world, her beloved, beautiful horse. Couldn't go on. Couldn't go on. Didn't know how she could go on. Prayed to God, you know, how could you take my horse from me? I need my horse back. I, I, I need my horse back and just not giving up. And when she first contacted me, she was genuinely perplexed because she knew her horse had returned to her. And this wasn't a case where a new horse was born and the birth date was after the date of the death and therefore you could logically explain, okay, the soul left this body on this date, decided to come back and reincarnate in this body on the next date, etc. This was a horse who was already alive when her horse passed. But this particular horse had a complete 100% change of personality instantaneously. It's like the horse who had been in there left, just left. And suddenly the soul of her horse walked in, 
and it was her horse with all of the same behaviors and all of the same patterns and answering to all the same things and knowing all of the same places and doing all of the same things. This was her horse, and she knew it, and she was blown away, and she didn't understand, and she wanted to understand what is happening. How could this if You know, my, my, my greatest wish came true. My greatest prayer was answered. How could this even be? And that's when I explained it to her. The, the whole concept of walk-in and the, and the rich history of this whole walk-in phenomenon really has when you start to research it. Right. And it was transformative for this young woman. And again, here's a case where she wasn't trying to justify or anything else. This completely blew her belief system away. And nevertheless, there it was. That's really interesting. You know, on that, how about this one? Christians are often surprised when one reveals to them all the animals found in heaven uh, that are in the book of Revelations. For example, Revelations 4, 6, and 11 describes, quote, four living creatures, close quote, immediately surrounding the very throne of God. In Revelations 5, 6, and 8, Jesus is described as turning into a lamb. In Revelations 5, 11, and 14, uh, we hear about a time when animals are resurrected from the dead and enter heaven. Now, many ancient religions around the world even hold animals to be divine beings. Question. Do you think, you know, this is metaphor or, or is there, is there more? I mean, do, are animals potentially divine beings? Absolutely. In my opinion, again, it comes back to the soul. Sure. And it's sort of like so many times people talk about human nature. And in my view, there is no human nature. There, there are certain common natures among humans, just as there are certain common natures among animals. And some humans, as I alluded to earlier, are, you know, what some, some psychologists theorize about 4% of humans are what are called sociopaths, meaning they have no capacity to empathize. They do not have the ability for compassion or remorse. And then there are another percentage of people who are tremendously empathic to the point of being hard to exist on this earth without just feeling everybody's pain all the time and then there's everyone in the middle so is there a human nature well which human are we talking about and i believe that that holds true for animals as well i believe there can be you know animals who are perhaps more narcissistic more self-absorbed perhaps even sociopathic just as i believe there are animals who have who have displayed all the signs of being a saint and again, if we just get past this idea that the costume dictates the soul inside, then we can start to see that. And it's beautiful when we do see that. That's I think we're missing metaphor. a lot when we don't allow ourselves to see that. All right. Evolution reveals how the physical component of our bodies descended from animals, but a lot of NDE research tells a story of how the spiritual component of our bodies descended from the heavens. Many NDE reports include stories of animals on the other side. Do you think this is wishful thinking manifested by a dying brain, or do you believe there is credibility to these stories? And if so, can you share such a story with us and why you believe it to be true? Sure. Well, first of all, I will just explain the whole NDE. And I started researching NDEs when I was a small child. It was just something that always fascinated me. And what I got was, yeah, sure, you could, you know, it's sort of like people who say, okay, there are, and I'm not going to say one way or the other, are there UFOs or not, but I will say that by, by creating a remote-controlled re- UFO and filming it and saying, hey, look, this looks real, therefore they're all fake, is kind of the same, is the same idea. Just because you can, you can replicate something in a different way doesn't mean that it's always replicated in that way. And likewise would be for the brain. 
Maybe a dying brain does shoot off and do certain things. Fine, let's, let's validate that. Does that mean that everyone who has had an NDE is simply having one of these experiences? And my answer would be no. And I base that on the fact that so many of the NDEs, people come back not just talking about all these beautiful, wonderful, amazing experiences they've had on the other side before coming back, but the experiences they had before they got to the other side. In other words, when they first lifted up out of their body and looked down and saw the nurse drop the pen under table number three and the guy in the hall was talking about the Dodgers or whatever. Very, I mean, these are specific details. The brain's not going to shoot that off unless this person had really been hovering above the body, watching the goings-on in the room as people are fussing, trying to save their life or whatever's going on at the time. And there are enough of these to know that, you know, in my opinion, it's ludicrous to think otherwise, to think anything other than the fact that obviously this soul was outside of the body, up above it, looking down and watching these things and seeing these things that they could have only seen if they were actually watching them. And therefore, to me, that in and of itself, that experience between leaving the body and going to the light validates the fact that they have left their body and this no longer has anything to do with the brain. This has to do with the journey after they've left the body. Now, when they get to that journey, would it be wishful thinking to see your beloved uh, dog or cat or whoever that you loved in life there? Of course it would. But what I found is so many times people who had these NDEs and saw animals on the other side weren't expecting for them and weren't even looking for them. Like city dwellers seeing farm animals on the other side and, and being surprised and saying, wow, I never would have thought that there would have been animals on the other side. That right there, I never would have thought, eliminates the idea that their brain was creating what they wanted to see. And like anything else, I feel that those are the stories that then anchor in all of the stories of the NDE, including those who do see their beloved departed animals when they have those brushes with death and those brief glimpses of heaven when they're then given the, the option to come back because they're not done with whatever they were doing in this lifetime. You know, I totally want to believe everything about this, but I have to take exception the fact that an individual isn't consciously aware and they say to you, you know, I never would have thought that doesn't. I mean, that presupposes that they have a clue what's going on inside their unconscious and the research just doesn't support that. So very often we'll have, we'll have ideas, we'll have, you know, images that, uh, again, we never would have thought we would have, but uh, they're not being produced by anything other than our brain. Still, you know, that's an aside that has no relevance. So, but here's a big question. Yeah, no, point well taken. Yes, absolutely. I agree. That's very true. So, you know, this is provocative enlightenment. I have to ask this one. It's one that troubles me, and I think it troubles many. What is the role of animals in our life? And I mean, some are certainly our friends. We we distinguish them. You know, our dogs, our cats, our horses, or, you know, uh, I mean, for some, it's even, you know, cattle, sheep, and a pig. All right? Are any of the animals here to impart, I mean, by impart, to, as a part of their role here to sustain us? Again, let me make myself clear. We harvest fruit and vegetables without a thought regarding their consciousness, despite the fact that there's some pretty good evidence that plants are aware. Okay? We take it for granted that fruits and vegetables exist as a part of the food chain just as plankton is a part of the food chain. Are there any animals that are here to be harvested 
by humans? And if so, please name them. Thank you. That's a very good question. And my opinion is no. And that's based not on necessarily on my research in the afterlife, but on my other, my other life, my other career, the thing I did for many years before all of this, and my work as an, a naturopath and my work in health and nutrition. And when I just look at it from a nutritional standpoint and I see that those who eat animals and animal products have these conditions and those who go off them overcome these conditions and all of my research along that route, even including blood types and body types and all of these things. Well, that, does that uh, include if, fish? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. That's, don't let me interrupt you. Yes. Keep going then. So if we're physically designed to thrive and do better with, uh, without consuming animals, and it's almost like an, an addiction, and, and much of the justification out there, if you really go look to the source of these so-called studies that prove this, that, or the other, when you really look at the origins of those studies, they're often put out by industries trying to promote uh, their profit in, in, you know, the consumption of animal products. Uh, so, and B, it's people who are addicted to animal products because animal products, meat and dairy products, actually are addictive in many ways similar to hardcore drugs. And excellent, I'm not an expert on this subject, but one who is, is Neil Barnard of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. I highly re- recommend his work. He has a lot of wonderful books and really talks about addiction and how the brain becomes addicted to animal products. So with all of my knowledge in that realm, I can say that there's no physical reason we would need it. And therefore, I don't believe that that's how we were evolved to be. I, I believe that that's sort of like just one of the many things on this planet that could be improved and that we're learning and working through. I realize this is controversial, and I, I wish we had an eight-hour show to go in depth on this right, one subject. Right. But well, uh, therefore, I don't... on it if you want, because I think this is a very important subject. I mean, if you're an Inuit in Alaska, uh, how do you survive as a vegetarian? Uh, why is it that uh, Jesus is, uh, you know, dividing the fish or... Uh, you know, we we have such a, a, a tradition uh, historically where, you know, in our evolution, long before we ever build a society that uh, that could support an agricultural community, we were just simply hunters and gatherers, and it was necessary for us to be as a part. So, do flesh it out. Take your time. I mean. Uh, as you've already pointed out, there's a lot of research that goes both direction, and there's a today there's a, a great deal of emphasis on omega threes and their sources, and you know you have cardiac care physicians telling you to eat you know salmon and uh, things of that nature. So what I'm hearing from you is the human being is not um, prepared to be an omnivore. And, and that's brand new. Gotcha. Right. And if you look at it, our world has been so uh, transformed by special interest and greed that, you know, so many of the things, for example, you brought up the, the omega-3s and the idea that we need to, to kill fish and eat them or, or squeeze them and take oil out of their bodies to get omega-3s. Uh, the truth of the matter is, for example, purslane is something, a wild edible that grows everywhere that is high in omega-3s and other plant foods. And what do we do in this country? Well, we, well, not we, but 
our society as a whole supports Monsanto to create Roundup to kill every ounce of purslane if it shows up in our yard. And there are so many things. There, there are, you know, well, I, don't, I don't want to get thrown in jail, but I won't say cures, but there are treatments and remedies for every ailment under the sun uh, growing in our own backyards, and, and so often they are called weeds, and we are told by our society and sometimes by our homeowners associations that we need to support Monsanto by buying these chemicals to kill these things that, that are, are showing up in our yards for a reason. And if we got back to the hunter-gatherer state and intuitively we would be picking these things and we would be consuming them all day long and we would be getting our fatty acids and our proteins and everything in the right ratios and we would just be kind of nourishing ourselves throughout the day rather than saying, okay, I'm going to sit down at this time and stuff my face and stretch my stomach out. And then in the middle of the day I'm going to go do it again. And at the end of the day I'm going to go for a third round. You know, in nature, we weren't designed this way. Things have really have really changed a lot, and so much of that has to do with uh, schedules and, you know, just conforming and just kind of fitting in with how our – even with our jobs. Like I remember years and years and years ago when I had one of my first jobs, I was told you have to take an hour lunch. I'm thinking, are you crazy? What am I going to do for an hour? I just want to be productive all day and just kind of snack as I go along. Um but a bigger part of that, again, is, is big industry and greed, and, and the, the meat and dairy industry and the chemical industries are just so powerful and in so many ways. They've hijacked our politicians. In some, on some levels, they've hijacked our religions, and uh, they've hijacked our, our culture and our society and our schools, and everyone in being a good citizen and being politically correct kind of goes along with what they're told. And um, it makes it quite easy for big industry to continue profiting upon uh, the, the illness of, of others. In fact, the cancer industry alone, is, it, it depends on people constantly getting cancer. It, it's a huge industry. It depends on that. It depends on, it, on, not, on not ever finding a cure. It depends on researching and always falling just short of a, quote, cure in the medical realm. Now, from what I know holistically, the cures are already there in nature. But that's beside the point. The point is that would be really bad for business if that got out. And if and if, if you can't patent it, if anyone could, could do these things in their own backyard, my goodness, what would that do to all these big, powerful industries? And it's big, and it's big. And as I mentioned earlier, when you go back and you look at a lot of these studies that are scaring people, like, oh, my God, if you go vegetarian, you're going to get this, that, and the other. And and the only validity I can see in, in many of those arguments, sometimes people, you will hear it said, that vegetarians can be anemic. And if you really look deeper and you look at what is that based upon, that's based upon dairy products. Because many times when someone goes vegetarian, part of them still believes that, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get enough protein, so if I stop eating flesh, I need to replace all that flesh with just this much more dairy. And dairy products can create anemia because they create an imbalance because we were never meant to consume the mammary secretions of somebody else's mother. In other words, if a cow produces milk, it's because she's just had babies, and that is the milk designed to, to, to grow a baby, a, a calf into a cow. And if we then, if we want to drink her milk, then we have to get rid of the baby. So well, how can we do that? Well, let's see. We've got an anemic baby who can't get his, have his mother's milk, um, you know, malnourished in general. 
So let's call him veal and make him gourmet and make people feel really important and successful if they eat him. Yeah, so that the good. mom can then give her milk to us to, to drink so that we can create all these health conditions and imbalances because we were never designed to drink that poor baby calf food. All right, we have a hard and, break. I take it you're a vegan, and, and that would be fair to say at this point. Uh, we'll pursue yes. this some more when we get back. Uh, I hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your calls. If you have questions or a story about your own animal uh, that has crossed over, do call in. Uh, you can call in by dialing one eight seven seven two three zero three zero six two. Or you can forward your questions, your comments in our chat room. Stay tuned. We always save the best for last. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com or bto.net and or bbs.com, we want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Eldon's international best-selling book, Mind Programming, is a must-read if you wish to live awake in a world of sheeples. Film producer Jeff Warwick had this to say about mind programming. Dr. Eldon Taylor's new book is a must-read. If you've ever questioned your purpose in life or felt bound by a culture that's driven by mass media, you now have at your fingertips the knowledge and tools to break the chains of this cycle. Eldon goes in-depth to illustrate and expose how we've been programmed from birth by social constraints, and he methodically reveals the psychological techniques that advertisers, politicians, corporations, and the media use to control us. He then provides strategies and solutions to free your mind from these tactics and rise to a new level of consciousness. As you read this book, you'll feel the blinders being removed and will truly see the world in an entirely new light. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Now, back to the show.
senses are shaken and the soul is driven to madness, who can stand? When the souls of the oppressed fight in the troubled air that rages, who can stand? When the whirlwind of fury comes from the throne of God and the frowns of his countenance drive the nations together, who can stand? When sin claps his broad wings over the battle and sails rejoicing in a flood of death, when souls are torn to everlasting fire and fiends of hell rejoice upon the strain, oh, who can stand? Oh, who hath caused this? Oh, who can answer at the throne of God? The kings and the nobles of the land have done it. Hear it not, heaven, thy ministers have done it. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Kim Sheridan about her delightful book, Animals in the Afterlife. We'll take your phone calls in this half hour, so if you have questions of our guests or animal stories you want to share with us, either give us a call or submit your comments, your questions in our chat room. Ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward. Okay, Kim, we just played Lullaby by Lorena McKennett. Why is this music important to you? Well, first of all, I'll say she's one of my favorite musical artists. There's nothing she's put out that I don't love. All of her songs, all of her CDs. And interestingly, she says that she wanted to be a veterinarian when she grew up, but music basically chose her. And I'm really glad it did because I, I feel her music is just so touching and so deep. And, and what I love about this song in particular is that she's included a poem by William Blake. And it's so beautifully uh, presented, in my opinion, so deep. It's very, very thought-provoking. And so not only is it only beautiful like all of her music, but it really it gets you thinking. And in my opinion, the way I interpret this is basically talks about all the bloodshed and the war and, and so much that's gone on our planet throughout time and who has caused this. And basically the conclusion is not only the kings and the nobles, in other words, the politicians and the leaders of our world, but here at Not Heaven, thy ministers have done it, meaning religion. And I see that as it is so ironic that the very thing that we all turn to and that we've been told, you know, makes you more, quote, holy or good or whatever, has been the source of so much trouble and so much suffering and bloodshed on our planet, so much hatred. 
And I really feel that this is something we all need to look hard at. You know, to this day, it's a huge issue on our planet. And so my, my view of spirituality is very, very different from, from the religion perspective that, in my opinion, is the cause of so much hatred and suffering and, and confusion. And again, I think this song just so artfully presents all of this. Beautiful piece. I love Blake's poetry, of course. Listen, uh, what I'd like to do in this last half hour is... You know, you share just incredible stories um, that I think do a great job at evidencing um, for the average reasonable person, at least, uh, an afterlife for animals. And I, and I want to get into that. And, and I also want to look at you. You do yourself. You're a, you're now an animal communicator. You didn't start out that way, but you are now an animal communicator. And people call on you to be with them when their animals are in trouble and are passing. You, you kind of take up that hospice role, like the hospice uh, physician for for us two-legged animals. Um, and that has to, you know, have a real toll on you. So let's begin with what is that like for you to to be placed in that role? Well, I agree with you. It has definitely taken its toll. I feel it's important work, and it's something that needs to be done. And I also feel that it's, there comes a point where we realize we've taken on too much. And I ended up doing that in my own life, taking on too much, because, you know, I'm heavily involved in animal rescue. So I'm kind of running my own hospital on a regular basis. Kim, are you on a landline? there came a point for me where... Kim, let me interrupt you for a second, because your voice is breaking up. Uh, your, Your voice is breaking up. Are you on a landline, or are you on a cell phone? Kim, I'm on a landline. You're on a landline. Well, I've got a, I've got a real wobble to your voice here. We're trying to figure that out here in the studio, uh, but uh, I think the best thing is let's let's disconnect and we'll call you right back. Okay, so hang up. I'll call you right back and we'll get a clean line. All right. While we're waiting to get Kim back on the air, uh, I I do want to tell you that. Um, I, I am an an animal lover, and I suppose, in all honesty, I suspend uh, left brain logic and reason when it comes to some of this stuff. Uh, on the other hand, I do look at it or try to look at it critically. And uh, th- this book, Animals in the Afterlife by Kim Sheridan, I find personally very, very comforting. If you... Uh, Enjoy animals. If you have an animal, if you've ever had to euthanize a friend of yours, uh, an animal, uh, hopefully it wasn't a two-legged one, I, I really strongly recommend this book. It, uh, it gives me peace at times when, uh, you know, I guess at times when I really need it. Well, look, we've got Kim back on the air. So now, Kim, please pick it up and tell us you had just, you know, said something about you overloaded yourself, uh, committed too much. So uh, pick it up from there, please. Absolutely. Okay, so I, I, there came a point where I realized I was taking on too much. And at the height of the book, when 
my book was just, I was just finishing up the research on book one and it was just coming out into the world and I was doing a lot of interviews and people were calling and calling in and I got to the point where I felt that I was just being inundated by contacts from animals and from people and it became so much that I kind of just for a while had to just stop and I had to say this is too much. And there came a period over the years between then and now where I've somewhat shifted my role and that is I'm still doing hospice but so much of the time it's with animals who are brought to me either through rescue or someone I know is going through that process and they need they need help um, more on a personal level rather than a global level if that makes any sense mm-hmm. and then I became aware that a lot of what I'm doing is more as a spokesperson for this whole cause in other words to get the information out there and to be a conduit for others who do this work and to share the work of professional animal communicators and mediums and help people to know that there are a lot of resources out there for these times. Uh, It's interesting because so much of the time I was so busy comforting others, I was ignoring my own needs, and then I I would be hit with a loss of my own, and it was just, what do I do with this? And my husband, Jameis, would say, read your book. Read your book. Read your own book. You need to read it. <laughs> and it really kind of hit me that he was right. You know, I needed to, to take some time to, to, to deal with my own grief rather than, than only helping others with theirs. And this was a real wake-up call for me to realize that there, there, there is a balance in life, that, you know, we neither want to be completely self-absorbed nor completely uh, selfless. There needs to be a balance. And there are people who gravitate on both sides of that spectrum, and finding that balance in the middle, I feel, is a recipe for real harmony in life. And it's interesting. Another thing I, I do want to speak to is the fact that although my book does bring out some pretty amazing stories, you know, in all in all the categories, as we talked about the NDEs and the after-death communications and the messages from the mediums and the animal communicators to, you know, again, that... The, the dreams and the visions and the signs and all of the different ways we, we receive real tangible contact from the other side to let us know they're still around and they're okay. It's not always going to hit you over the head like a ton of bricks. And there came a point in my life where I started to expect that. You know, here I am researching all these amazing experiences people are having, and then I would have a loss of my own and think, well, you know, where is my solid visitation? You know, where, when is the animal going to walk through the room and I'm going to pet her in full physical form? When am I going to have that, have one of those experiences that vivid? And it's not always like that. So it's important that I, I, that I bring that up, that, you know, reading these stories, which, whose purpose I feel is to validate the whole idea that there is an afterlife for animals, I don't want that to set people up for disappointment thinking that, Every single time an animal passes, they need to have this, you know, full technicolor after-death contact. Some of these are more subtle, but that does not in any way diminish their meaning or their importance. Because there is a veil between this this world and and the other, and it's a vibrational shift. And it's not that easy. You know, while it's not easy for us to see that side, I feel it's also not easy for those on the other side to really slow down that vibration enough for us to see them. So it's a real process, and I feel that in any way we receive a contact, it's important we validate it. First of all, to thank them for going to the trouble to letting to, to making that contact, but also to not diminish the amount of comfort it, we allow ourselves to have as a result of that, if that makes sense. And sense. to know that 
if we don't have one of those really dramatic experiences, I feel that's what professionals are for, professional animal communicators, professional, you know, psychic mediums with a good track record. Um, sometimes we do need outside help or, or someone who specializes in grief counseling for those who have lost a beloved animal. It's important to know those resources are there and not to take them lightly. You know, Kim, there are some, as, as we've said, incredible stories. And I believe you are the one that told me the story of the woman uh, who lost her dog, and the dog, uh, you know, told uh, an animal communicator that uh, it had buried. Uh, wasn't that you that told me that story? About buried a bone in a certain part of the yard? Y- yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Share that story with us. Well, yeah, I, I, okay. I find that And there have really been many compelling. stories like that. But, yeah, if it's the same story that I'm thinking of, it was where the woman, you know, she was talking to a professional animal communicator after her departed dog has passed, and the animal communicator is passing along messages to her. And, of course, the first, mo- the first place the skeptical mind goes, and I feel that's why I'm in this position as an inherent skeptic, yet having right. these experiences at the same time, my mind would first go to, okay, well, the psychic's reading her mind. The psychic's remote viewing. You know, the psychic's doing this or that. She's not really talking to the departed dog. But this was a case where... The woman didn't even know where this thing was buried. So the psychic couldn't have read her mind because this woman didn't even know. And she was giving very specific messages from the dog. And the dog said, this is where it's buried. And then when she went there, it was. Right. And this, Go ahead. Okay. And this actually brings to mind another story of a cat that came through, um, oh, something called electronic voice phenomenon. And that's where, uh, and I've actually had experience with uh, EVP myself, electronic voice phenomenon, wherein right. you can actually record sounds from the beyond on a recording device. And well, interestingly enough, I find show. it. We've actually uh, okay. played some EVP. EVP. Awesome. So it, yeah. uh-huh. It's fascinating. And interestingly, so while, while she's uh, talking to a psychic medium, when they play the tape back later, and I find EVPs in some ways work better on tape than on digital, which is harder to come by nowadays. But anyway, uh, the cat, kind of, a really clear, distinctive meow is played back on the tape while the psychic is talking, at, at, almost as if to emphasize whatever the medium is bringing through at this point from the cat. And the message from the cat is basically, um, your tires, you need to check out your tires. You know, does this mean that woman's like, what does tires have to do with this? You know, she's wanting her cat to talk about, I don't know, where the cat bowl is or something. But the cat is going on and on and on about the tires. It's so important. When she plays it back and they hear the meow during that point, that's like, okay, this is important. What does this mean? She has her car checked out. Her tires are bald. She's, you know, on the brink of a serious accident, not even knowing that her tires are, you know, right on the fringe of a blowout. And it's her cat from the beyond basically warning her, look, I'm still watching out for you, and I want to make sure you're okay. And I find stories like that fascinating. It's kind of a merging of a medium and an EVP, two different types of, you know, after-death communication, so to speak. And the funny thing is, I was telling this story when I was doing a television interview um, a number of years ago, and um, the producer found it fascinating. We were talking about this story. And the story didn't make it in the interview, but I did tell them about it. And then the producer of the interview about animals in the afterlife called me a week or so later as they were getting the show ready to air. And she said, I want you to hear this. She says, 
we're playing back your interview, and you can hear these very distinctive dog barking when there was no dog in the room or in the building or anywhere in the yard or the vicinity at the time of the interview during a point where we were talking about a departed dog. And that's just, you know, I just love these validations. Yeah, I I like that. Listen, I've got to put a couple of questions forward that are out of our chat room. Uh, Quit being so selfish and dominating your time. Mark says, I don't understand uh, by it's acceptable for other animals to be meat eaters, but not humans. Our bodies have evolved from a long chain of meat eaters. That's a valid question, and I understand that question, and not at all. You know, I'm not at all here to argue that. That's something I've looked at as well. Why are some animals meat eaters and others not? You know, I would love a world where no one was a meat eater, where there was no killing and no violence. You know, a lot of religions talk about that is a point of evolution in our future that we're working toward. Are we there? No. Are we by any means close to being there? No. (laughs) But I will say, again, from my research, many, many decades of research, in health and nutrition and uh, overcoming life-threatening illnesses and so forth. I will just say uh, that for whatever reason, we as human beings are designed to eat a plant-based diet. And uh, when one really embraces that and does the research and and adopts that lifestyle, it's truly transformative. Uh, The anti-aging benefits, the uh, health benefits are enormous. So I'll just put that out there for whatever it's worth. You know, I'm not an argumentative person. I just I like to share the facts as I un- uncover them. Okay, Kim, do you think that there should be, I mean, we have a universal proclamation of rights that most nations signed on to after World War II, even though they ignore it today. But do you think that we should have uh, a proclamation of animal rights, uh, um, something of that nature that... Uh, that defines the rights of an animal? And if so, what are those rights? Well, I feel like it should be the same as the rights of humans, as Thomas Jefferson so eloquently put it, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that if we just got down to that, including animals, I think that would transform our world. On turn so all many the dogs levels. loose to run in the street. We have wild dogs. Is that what you mean by liberty? I'm sorry, but you know, flesh that out <laughs> no, for me, please. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Point well taken. Um, and I was thinking more in terms of food animals and that whole thing. But yeah, it's a big dilemma with the with the, the overbreeding and the overpopulation. I think that just a continual, you know effort of education to people to, to not breed, to not support puppy mills, to get involved in rescue. If you want a, if you want a dog, if you want a, if you want a purebred dog, find a rescue of that type of dog. You know, basically I feel we should all be rescuing until and unless there is no excess, until all the shelters have been shut down, until there's no one left who, who needs a home. You know, then if the breed people want to talk to me about breeding, we can have that conversation at that point in time, but we're by no means close to there now. And so, again, I think it's it's not something we can do overnight. It's something that we have to just work toward. And if everyone decided today, you know, I'm going to adopt an animal, what would that do if everyone just said today I'm going to adopt one animal from a shelter? That would be tremendous. That would be enormous. And so these are just steps we take little by little, I think, to get to where we feel we need to be. And it's interesting because so many times people are like, you know, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to think about that. If 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 there, the tremendous amounts of suffering that go on with animals on this planet behind the scenes, whether it be in, you know, labs or uh, 
puppy milk or yeah. the yeah exactly all of that you know if people start to show footage of that people are so offended and they often do get you know angry at the messenger so to speak but the truth is the messenger is just saying you know if we can't even stand to look with our eyes at what they're experiencing with their bodies what's wrong with that if it's too upsetting to us to even look at then how can we expect them to go through that and stand back and say that's okay Perfectly Obviously, said. it's not okay if we don't even want to look at it. In one minute, Kim, and that's about all we have left, I want you to tell everybody how they can get a hold of you, how they can follow up and learn more about your work, your website, etc. Okay, sure. The, the, uh, the website for the book, again, is animalsandtheafterlife.com, and my general website is kimsheridan.com. That's K-I-M-S-H-E-R-I-D-A-N.com. And there are ways on there where you can find out how to join the, the email list, which is definitely not a spam list. It's a very occasional newsletter of, of, of goings-on. And all of my other work, which is, uh, has been evolving out not just from, in books but also into film and other ways of getting information out there. Um, and my goal, again, is to help make the world a better place and help people and animals alike be healthier and happier. And I'll tell you what, Kim Sheridan, I am very glad personally you did not burn your book, Animals in the Afterlife. It has been a great comfort to me. I genuinely recommend this as a read for all of you. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment, and I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.